so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Also, the pounding is back. Because you said something. <laughs> now it's back. Uh, yikes. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me on this week of all weeks when all other plans got canceled is Brent Leatherwood. Well, no, they, they got canceled. They just got pushed aside because the, the Supreme Court decided it was going to dominate our lives this week. That's right. Yeah. Other things got canceled, but yes, pushed to the side. What got canceled? I don't know. Actually, Judge here in Nashville, Judge Alito's appearance at a judicial conference, it got canceled. Yeah, so I would imagine. Yeah. So we're going to do our format a little bit differently today because uh, the SCOTUS draft leak is such a big story and is eclipsing everything else as it as it should, as we're talking about the future of abortion in our nation. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and and then we'll move into um, giving you a little bit of a taste of what else the ERLC has been talking about this week. I want to start with a piece, Brent, that you wrote, a very helpful piece titled Understanding the Draft Opinion Leak of the Supreme Court, the Most Consequential Leak of Our Lifetime. And in this piece, you just run down some of the effects that might happen because of this leak, and then why it's important for us to understand this leak rightly. So, Brent, to start off, why don't you give us a rundown of what actually happened with this leak? Okay, so, Lindsay, uh, in the piece that I wrote that you're referencing here, I, I refer to this leak as the most consequential leak of our lifetime. And that's just because there are so many different effects that this is going to have on the way that the Supreme Court is operating currently, uh, the you know potential uh, erosion of trust between the justices, all the way into the future for Supreme Court nominations and how those debates will be carried out in, in the U.S. Senate. I, this is just going to have massive effects across the legal and political uh, spectrum. So the, the leak itself, a, the Supreme Court just doesn't leak. It is very, very important for the Supreme Court justices to be able to, once they hear oral arguments in a case, uh, they meet for a conference. They, they take a preliminary vote just to kind of see where everybody stands on the merits of the case itself. If, uh, if a majority emerges, uh, someone is tasked with drafting up some thoughts uh, that that could eventually become part of the opinion, but essentially drafting up an opinion that might reflect the perspectives of that majority. That's what we're looking at here. 
according to this report in Politico, a newspaper based out of uh, Washington, D.C., a news outlet, I should say, based out of Washington, D.C., Judge Samuel Alito was tasked with writing this first draft of a majority opinion of, you know, plausibly five justices that are seeking to vote to overturn the Roe versus Wade uh, abortion decision from 1973. And this draft opinion is, I think, in many respects, something that many of us on the the pro-life side of things and the in the pro-life movement, we we've been wanting a Supreme Court opinion uh, that looks a lot like this. There's a lot of good in this report. But we're getting, as we look at this opinion, we're getting a peek at something that is in process. This is almost assuredly not going to be the final product. Maybe a lot of it represents uh, what could be in the in the final product, but it's just it's just not not clear that that is the case. So in the political report, it said this is the first draft. Okay, well, just by implication, that would mean that there are additional drafts, which means that there are certain changes in there. There might be substantive changes. Uh, you you could potentially have a justice who has said, "Hey, I voted initially uh, after the case, and now I'm, I'm kind of having some doubts based on your reasoning here. I, I'm not sure I'm ready to be in the majority." I mean, that's the kind of conversations and discussions and deliberations that take place uh, between the justices. And, and so, for for this to come out, it's going to, as I said earlier, it's going to erode the trust between justices. You know, the, the chief justice has come out. He's verified the veracity uh, of the opinion. And he has said that they're going to initiate an investigation to figure out who actually leaked this, this document. Leak cases are, are notoriously pretty hard to actually determine who, who is the original person doing the leaking. But again, it, it's really hard to overstate the magnitude uh, of what transpired this week. And Lindsay, I like how you open this podcast up by admitting like, okay, we all kind of thought we were going in this direction this week. And then Monday at 7.30 p.m., I just got blitzed with text messages and phone calls from individuals who were saying, have you read this? And since then, I've had a number of pastors ask me like, hey, is this is this real? And it is. And it is something. And I, that's that's kind of what my my piece explores is just all the not all, it's impossible to do it in one piece, but just at least some of the myriad ways this leak is affecting different aspects of our culture right now. And no doubt this leaked opinion is exciting to us, to those of us who care about life, every life, from the point of conception until the moment of natural death. And we would want this opinion to stand in the sense that lives would be saved. But help us understand, say this opinion did come down and it overturned Roe. You talk in your piece about the role of the state legislators and what this might mean for them. And so help us understand what that would mean for them, that abortion won't go away and be wiped out. Right. So the basic holding uh, within the opinion will be that Roe versus Wade, which set a, a national standard for abortion rights, that will be taken down. And in its place, the the issue of abortion itself uh, will no longer reside and, and be protected at the federal level. Instead, it will be an issue that is given to the states for each state to uh, regulate on their own. 
So in this case, Mississippi has come directly at Roe uh, by saying, we want to establish a 15-week abortion ban. The Roe Casey, it's the, the later case that came after Roe, uh, that kind of submitted uh, abortion as a, as a right. They envisioned the viability line taking place at, you know, several weeks later. And Mississippi is saying, no, we, we want to regulate abortion after, after 15 weeks. There are some states out there that have now gone beyond that. And so basically what the justices, if they, if they actually, if this majority opinion were to hold, what they conceivably are, are telling us here is that states will be free to basically say, if you're in a state, for example, like we are in Tennessee, that a abortion will basically be illegal. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, so it, those in our audience who might not be in a state like Tennessee, but might instead be in a state like California or Illinois, you're going to have very permissive abortion rights. Some states are, are pushing to have abortion up until the moment of birth. There's actually a proposal in California that somehow they have deluded themselves into thinking that a baby post-birth uh, does not deserve medical care. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, uh, some of this stuff that's out there on on the far left of this. And so actually, and, and we just learned uh, earlier this morning, uh, last night, uh, out of committee in, in Louisiana, they, they passed uh, what's known as an abolition bill uh, that would effectively protect life from the moment of conception and criminalize any activity to, to take that life. And so basically, you're going to have 50 states pursuing 50 different policies that uh, their le- the leaders of those states, respectively, would say, hey, these fit the, the values of the people in my state. I think we we may live with that for a while, that that sort of tension between states. But what I would hope it would mean is that eventually, uh, and I, I told that to a reporter this week, that maybe eventually we get to a place where we actually say these preborn neighbors of ours, they deserve protection. Their lives deserve protection. And through the 14th Amendment, uh, we would actually get some sort of a, a national right to life. That That's probably far off in the future, although I would imagine, if I were betting on it, there will be some sort of concurrence written to this majority opinion that actually articulates that as kind of a, a marker uh, for down the line. Um, we'll see. But again, this is just, people are going to say, oh, we're, we're overplaying this. No, we're not. This This is a massive moment in American jurisprudence. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. And, you know, and then that starts opening up the conversation of, well, what was the motivation of the person leaking this? And the theories out there are, it, it's fun to read them. I'm not sure it's really that helpful. There, there's been some people on social media that have like attempted to do some like internet sleuthing and, and they're starting to name individual law clerks. And, and this is happening on, on both the liberal side and the conservative side. That's really not helpful. But needless to say, it's it's just interesting. Actually, it's, it's completely fascinating that this happened. It really is. Really fascinating. And I bet, as we've been saying since 2020, it was on nobody's 2022 bingo card <laughs> that this would be leaked. <laughs> so there has been talk about codifying the right to abortion before the decision comes down. So what exactly does that mean? Is that a likelihood? So in a number of states, that that's actually already happened. I, I think just for clarity, you're, you're talking about what we're seeing out of Washington this week? 
Yes, is that it's out of the Senate in the Senate? Right. So in the in Congress in the in the US House, they've actually already passed a bill that is probably the the most permissible uh, abortion bill that we've ever seen. Uh, and we have several pieces on erlc.com explaining that. The US Senate is trying to pass that same legislation. More than likely though, it will be filibustered. Uh, and there just won't be 60 votes there to pass it. Now, the Democrats, you know, uh, Leader Schumer, who is the majority leader in the, the U.S. Senate, I mean, he's effectively signaled this may be the thing to break the filibuster over. Uh, unfortunately for him, and thankfully for us, uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator uh, Kirsten Sinema from uh, Arizona have said they just see no reason to blow up the filibuster to, to pass this. And, and so thankfully, we, we actually, we need to be praying for them to withstand the pressure uh, that that is going to come for them to try and overturn the filibuster. But yes, the, this, this legislation that uh, Senator Schumer uh, is, is saying he's going to introduce on the floor next week, it, it would have the effect of codifying Roe. As a matter of fact, I, I think it would basically allow for abortion up through nine months, which is egregious it's terrible. Uh, the, the act of abortion is it, it's egregious in in any respect but the the fact that there is this political initiative to see it be the most permissive uh, that's just that just seems far fetched to me i mean it, uh, america is already in this very bad category along with nations like north korea and in china in allowing abortion after the the first trimester, and to to think that we there there are parts of us in our political system that that want to go even farther than that that's whew, that's just that's that's crazy to me. Right. Well, and it's evidence of the fallenness of humanity, of sin, of seared consciences, of minds being blinded yeah. by the enemy. You know, and but what's even funny about that? Uh, there was a, a podcast, uh, advisory opinions, that our our friend. Uh, David French and uh, Sarah Isger host, and uh, David was was pointing out that there was this big study done where instead of just taking a you know, traditional poll, they just sat down and talked with people from all over the kind of political spectrum, and specifically about the issue of abortion. And what they found was that whether you're someone who is very pro life or someone who is a pro choice activist they could not find any major evidence of anyone who thinks abortion is a desirable thing. And, and so that that tells me, okay, get past the political talking points, get past the tribalization. And I think for the vast majority of people there at their core, they, they understand, yeah, there's just something inherently wrong here with taking the life of this preborn child. Now they'll, they'll excuse it because they'll you know, say, oh, look, there's, there's, there's a whole host of you know, economic reasons or personal reasons, cultural reasons, et cetera. And I think that actually is the opportunity for an entity like the church to step in and to do everything we can to come around a mother who might be wrestling with some of those factors and lower the burdens that, that those, those potential factors may, may play on her decision. Now, do any of those factors, do they outweigh the concern that the preborn child has for for living? Absolutely not. I mean, it, Christians would say, no, of course not. But we shouldn't ignore that that some of those variables are out there. They play into the decision of many of these, these vulnerable mothers, these women in crisis. 
And so let's do what we can as the church to alleviate those things. Because if, if we are just out there loving our neighbor and you're telling me that by doing so, there's a greater likelihood that we're going to save the life of that child. My goodness, what a great moment. What a great opportunity for us. And in, in doing so, as, as the church wraps around and supports that mother uh, who is in that unplanned situation, we are modeling for the state, uh, potentially, some ways that it can be helpful in alleviating those kinds of concerns. And so there's just there's a lot of goodwill to be done here in furtherance of, of saving uh, the, these preborn lives. Yes, we, you know, it's a way of removing some physical stumbling blocks that may contribute to a mom's decision, which, as you said, to end her child's life, which, as you said, is never, 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 never justified, ever. And maybe in helping to alleviate some of those physical stumbling blocks, I mean, doing whatever we can to save a life, but will pave the way also to be able to share the gospel, remove spiritual stumbling blocks to share the gospel. And that's what's important in all of this. At the end of the day, we don't know how the court is going to end up voting. We don't know if this draft opinion is going to hold. We don't know what the ruling would be. But we are in the midst of truly spiritual warfare, where our battle is not against flesh and blood, the Bible tells us, but it's against the principalities of darkness. And so as believers, we need to be praying, which you, of course, talked about in your piece and gave a guide toward what we can be praying about. We need to be praying earnestly, and we need to be holistically caring for people, not shying back from speaking the truth, but speaking uh, the truth with grace and humility and compassion, and also at the same time, seeking to meet needs as we are able. Because we know ultimately God is the one who has to change hearts, and God is the one who's going to open eyes for people to see that you use the 14th Amendment as grounds for the right to abortion, but that very amendment talks about people not being robbed of the right to life. And a whole generation of women have been wiped out by this. Men as well, but women whose rights we're specifically talking about had been wiped out because of abortion. And we've got to pray that that the Lord would be kind enough to stop that. You know, just just going back to the seeming policy divide that separates those who are pro-life, those who are pro-choice, which traditionally, not in every instance, but traditionally that, that does fall into a more conservative side and a more liberal side. But just let me read this as an example to say, y'all, if we really want to pursue this in uh, good faith and with, with goodwill, there are some gaps that can be bridged here. So for example, this comes from Bradley Whitford, who starred in you know, West Wing that we've mentioned countless times here on the podcast. Uh, he starred as Josh Lyman. He's an actor. He's been in a number of different major movies. He said this, I, I think it's from this week, but uh, th this quote is attributed to him. And it says, women don't inseminate themselves. If you want to take away their right to control their own bodies without ensuring that the inseminator takes full legal responsibility for the child at the moment of inception, you're not pro-life. You just hate women. You want to punish them. Okay, well, so obviously there's some disagreement in there based on just the premise, right? It's hard to 
talk about the autonomy of the woman's body, but not talk about the autonomy of the life inside of her. So put that disagreement on the premise. But here he is effectively saying, okay, if you want to do this, you need to make sure that the father of the child remains in the picture and fulfills his obligations. And as Christians uh, who are working in the public policy space, we would say, yes, absolutely. No, that's exactly what we want. And if you're telling me that there are some public policy solutions out there that would ensure that, and you're telling me that's all it would take to ensure that that child is brought to term and can take his or her first breath, absolutely sign me up and give me the honor of going and finding a whole bunch of conservative co-sponsors for that bill. Because that's, yes, that's exactly what we want. And more importantly, so take a step back from the, the, the policy of that and just back into the eternal truths that we know as Christians. Yes, that is the roadmap for flourishing that God designed for us. One man who is a father, one woman who is the mother, together creating and raising a child in a safe, secure environment in the context of a marriage covenant. Like that's, that is what we want. And so it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, just, you got to get through, there's a lot of outrage out there, right? You you open any social media app, you, you turn on any news station, you're going to have to get through some of this. But I'm telling y'all, there are some ways that we can bridge these divides. And, and this is just one example. I, I've seen other examples uh, this week. And, and so I actually am, am filled with a lot of optimism uh, in, in the wake of, of this uh, draft opinion leak. And, and again, we do need to say this with a huge caveat. This may very well change. Uh, th- this opinion is by definition not final. It is a draft. Uh, there, there are even there are multiple spelling errors. I, as I was reading through it, I was like, okay, this didn't even get run through spell check just yet. And so th- this is obviously going to change. And it, it may happen uh, that the the votes themselves change. That that has happened previously in in any number of cases. So uh, w- we need to continue anticipating the release of this Dobbs decision. We need to be praying in this moment and we need to be prepared because if, if the decision is handed down and it is along the contours of, of what is in this draft opinion, there's a lot of work ahead of us. And it's only speculation as to when the opinion, the actual decision will come down. You would think that maybe it would be sooner because of the leak, but who knows? It could be it could be later. The justices could say, forget it. We're not going to let this leak change our schedule and we're going to just wait until the end. Right. And I said, I told a few members of the uh, the media, I would personally urge, uh, you know, us at the ERLC would, would urge the court to go ahead and, and finalize their deliberations because of this leak and, and get this opinion out sooner. And the reason for that is what, exactly what you said, Lindsay. Uh, the the public pressure, the the speculation, the political polarized back and forth uh, that is a- occurring this week. To think that that may continue for another month, month and a half, which most of us were anticipating 
that this Dobbs decision would, would likely be one of the final, if not the final uh, decision that was released, because it is going to be so consequential. But now that this leak is out there, to me, it, it would it would seem to be far better for just our civic discourse to go ahead and, you know, for the chief justice to say, hey, if you were working on a concurrence or a dissent, you need to wrap those up and we need to get this out there. And I, I think if they did that, I think it would have the effect of showing exactly what you just said, uh, Lindsay. We're not going to be swayed by whatever is happening outside of this U.S. Supreme Court building. This is where we fell on the votes. Here is where the majority stands. Here's where the minority stands. And here is the reasoning uh, for, for all of those votes. And, and just get it out there. So it will be a, a case study in judicial leadership to see how the chief justice and the, the rest of the associate justices handle this. Before I wrap up this discussion, I thought that this was interesting. Somebody was telling me, just an interesting tidbit, that the Supreme Court justices do not have any kind of personal security, and that's unique to them, meaning they park their cars, they have to walk, they walk in by themselves. That would seem to be, it's just an interesting tidbit to me and kind of dangerous in our current political atmosphere with this draft opinion leaked. Right. Well, so uh, that that is true in the sense that they don't have like a Secret Service body man right. who is following them around. Now, they do have relatively large, since we're only talking about nine individuals that that make up the Supreme Court bench, uh, they actually do have a relatively large uh, law enforcement service that is the Supreme Court police. I want to say the other day I read a statistic that per justice, they actually would have uh, 19 police officers. So conceivably, if they have that kind of expertise and training, maybe a few of those could be assigned to be, at least for a season, uh, almost like a protective service for for each individual justice, but you, but you're right, yeah. So it's it's fascinating. There are some crazy people out there. So there are, and so to kind of put a, a bow on on this particular section, you know, I'm I love our team and and this organization because this all happened on Monday night, and first thing Monday morning, we had several of our colleagues saying we need to do some sort of prayer gathering or prayer time and and so we we held this this SBC prayer gathering and I was just blown away by how many people were just able to just slide this right into their calendar uh with about an, an hour or so uh notice and I'm just so thankful for these individuals who who were making time to be a part of it so Dr. Ed Litton who is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh Dr. Adam Greenway president of Southwestern Seminary uh, Susie Hawkins, advocate for, for life and adoption. We're so grateful that, that she was making time to do it. Uh, Dana McCain, uh, who is uh, a writer uh, about faith and culture and politics uh, at AL.com. Uh, Willie McCorn, uh, who's the interim president CEO of the SBC Executive Committee. And uh, Victor Chayasiri Soban, the president of the California Baptist Convention. We just got together a great group of folks to just lead through uh, specific prayers uh, for kind of all aspects of of this draft opinion. And there were several news stories about it, uh, but the one that I, I thought would be appropriate to highlight here comes from Deseret News. And the title is, As Some Rallied Over Roe v. Wade, 
these Christians prayed. And uh, she starts it off like this. The morning after Politico published a leaked Supreme Court opinion draft showing the justices could soon overturn Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention's public policy arm did more than publish a statement praising the news. It also brought people together to pray. On Tuesday, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission hosted a brief prayer gathering meant to help Southern Baptists process the report and prepare for a post-Roe future. Speakers, including the Reverend Ed Linton, the SBC's president, asked God for help caring for women, children, and the whole country in the days ahead. And then she quoted me. This is a moment that calls for prayer, said me, acting president of, of the RLC as I kicked off the virtual event. By the end of the gathering, seven distinct prayers had been offered on a range of abortion-related topics. Speakers urged God to be with young mothers and anxious fathers and to help Southern Baptist churches serve their communities well. And I just, uh, this piece just does such a, a great job, I think, summarizing the, the heart of our organization in this this incredibly important moment. Obviously, it's important for our pro-life work, but it is just crucial and vital to our our pro-life Christian witness. And uh and so yeah, we'll we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah, it was a sweet time and I'm so thankful that y'all rose up to make that happen and that is a good way to end this discussion that above all we could speculate and we could argue well on Twitter with respectfully and with gentleness. And that those things are important, but it's most important that we pray. Um, you wrote this in your piece. The end of Roe would mark a new beginning for the pro-life movement. Churches will be essential in this coming moment. Already, I've been told stories of individual congregations partnering with local foster programs, supporting local Baptist children's homes, teaming up with pregnancy resource clinics in their communities, and helping policymakers in their pews understand the inherent worth and value of every child. If this draft opinion becomes a reality, all of this and more will be needed. And that's what we should be praying for, and that's how you directed us to pray in your piece. Directed us to praise God for this moment and those who have dedicated their lives to serving uh, vulnerable children and their mothers, lamenting the loss of so many children over the last 50 years, praying for the justices and their and their safety um, and that they would have fortitude, and then asking God to raise up the next generation of pro-life leaders who will serve in their communities and churches, who will proclaim the gospel, and who will meet physical needs as well. So we will eagerly be anticipating the ruling that's going to come down and what the future of our nation will look like after that. That's a great way to to end this bit unusual segment for us, but it was a it was a it was an unusual week. It really so. was an unusual week. And I want to highlight just a couple other pieces that we featured and actually this next one, talking about prayer, is appropriate because when we're recording today is on Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. So on this National Day of Prayer, when we're recording, we have a piece by Hannah Daniel titled, A Prayer for Our Country on the National Day of Prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer that Hannah has written that individuals, families, churches can use as a guide. And, you know, the National Day of Prayer is an annual time at, on which, this is quote, on which the people of the United States may turn to God in prayer and meditation at churches and groups and as individuals. And what's important for us is that as believers, uh, we have the opportunity to go to the only true God in prayer on behalf of our nation. And we know that when we 
that we're dependent on God to move and that we go to him, he listens to us, that he invites us to come to him and urges us from 1 Timothy 2 to intercede for all people, including our leaders, that we can live peaceable lives that the gospel could would go forth. And so Hannah praises God, prays for the vulnerable people in our nation, prays for our leaders. She asks for forgiveness for just our, our sins as believers and as a nation. And I just think it's beautiful. It's a great way for you um, to take this in your quiet time or um, around the dinner table and pray with your family and your friends and church and ask the Lord to have mercy on our nation and work in ways that are evident that it could only be Him at work. And then finally, you may not know it uh, because of everything else that's been being discussed, but this week is Children's Mental Health Awareness Week. And if you have been paying attention to the news throughout this pandemic, young people have really been adversely affected and have been struggling with their mental health. So Stephen Gresevich, who uh, is a professional in the mental health world with a, with a ministry called Key Ministry, toward youth dealing with mental health issues, has an article titled, 10 Things Christians Should Know About Kids and Anxiety, Providing Peace and Refuge in a Post-Pandemic World. And as you click on this piece in our show notes, I would encourage you to click on Stephen's name and read other articles that Stephen has written about how the church can have a robust mental health ministry, the people who are missing from our churches because of the things that they are struggling with. Stephen gives some great pieces of advice. For instance, anxiety is normal and often a healthy emotional state, but of course it can turn unhealthy. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health conditions affecting youth ages 12 to 17 in the U.S. He gives some red flags that we can be aware of, talks about some different anxiety disorders to be aware of, talks about treatments and challenges. And then he says, God invites us to come to him with our anxieties, casting them on his able shoulders because he cares for us. And as the church, we must be a refuge for those weighed down with cares, leading adults and children alike to find peaceful pasture under the faithful watch of our good shepherd. The circumstances in our chaotic world will continually tempt Christians to be consumed with worry. But as we seek to help and equip those who are struggling the most among us, we can remind them of the true and active words that Jesus speaks to our souls. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, from John 16, 33. And that is appropriate, not just for that specific topic of children's mental health, but even what we've just talked about today and the leaked SCOTUS draft opinion and the future of abortion in our nation and, and the pandemic and the host of things that would threaten to weigh us down with worry. We have a good shepherd who has spoken the truth to us in order that in the midst of all the tribulation we face, we can have a peace that passes all understanding. I am honestly, I am just amazed that in this week where this Supreme Court opinion draft was was leaked, we are still able to provide helpful pieces about other aspects. And I want to point out, I thought it was, it's amazing. This week, we we had scheduled to specifically be talking about ways to help and support uh, mothers, and in particular, vulnerable mothers. And so we're all thinking about the ways that our churches, our communities, uh, even our, our public policy solutions can wrap around those mothers 
serve them and in doing so save uh, the life of the the child that they are they are carrying and so it never ceases to amaze me the resources we were able to put out because of your good stewardship Lindsay Nicolay well Brent it's amazing how the Lord works those things out because he really does you you can't plan these things we didn't have an inside informant in the Supreme Court or Politico that let us know what was going to happen. And so the Lord just allows us to provide the right resources at the right time, and it is definitely our privilege to be able to do so. So Brent, given the gravity of this week and just the uniqueness and the monumentalness, is that even a word? That's not a word. I'm not sure that's a word. Right. (laughs) How monumental this week is. We're going to just change up the format of the podcast and go ahead and close it out and leave you listeners with those concluding thoughts about how we truly should be praying earnestly about these preborn lives for the justices and for their fortitude and that that day that we have been longing for would actually come to pass sometime very soon, that Roe would no longer be the law of the land, that lives would be saved and that the church would step up to care for vulnerable children and mothers and families in our midst. Yeah, absolutely. First Thessalonians 5, right? Uh, Pray without ceasing, Paul said, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And uh, this is certainly a moment uh, where we we need to be praying uh, for these justices and the Supreme Court and our nation and vulnerable mothers anxious fathers, families in crisis, uh, and for our churches to be active and motivated, not by political concerns, not by policy preferences, but by wanting to actually exhibit the love of Christ and to truly serve and love uh, our neighbors. And, uh, and, And we can do that. Absolutely. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolet. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.